0: All my years of listening to the blues, it seems like I've heard a lot of songs about love gone wrong and going to jail and being out of work and hard times. So I decided to write a song about having the blues because none of those things happen. Well, my baby won't quit me.
1: Welcome to Inside Jackson Station. That's the Reverend... Billy C. Wurtz, the master of the 88 Key disaster. Billy, on his own website, is described as a comic genius, gifted pianist, and American musicologist who defies easy classification. That's certainly true, and you'll hear more from Billy in his interview with Dan Harrison shortly. Billy not only is a legendary blues musician and comedic personality. He also was a key figure in the story of Jackson station and was one of the first people that Dan interviewed when he was pulling together the book live at Jackson station, we're going to hear some of Dan's original interviews with Billy from 2017. Lots to talk about, lots to learn from Billy's perspective on life and his experience at Jackson Station. We'll pick up with Dan and Billy shortly, but before we do, let's hear a little bit more of Billy singing, Just Can't Seem to Get the Blues. Welcome back to Inside Jackson
0: Station. Well, my baby won't quit me. The doctor says, you're okay. People, how am I supposed to get the blues? when everything keeps going my way policeman pulled me over and he said, hey buddy, oh it's my fault, please excuse <laughs> yeah good luck just keeps on following me and people I just can't seem to get the blues
2: hi this is Dan Harrison, author of Live at Jackson Station and host of the podcast Inside Jackson Station, where we take you behind the scenes of this iconic South Carolina blues bar that operated in the South Carolina backcountry in the 1970s and 1980s. This episode features the Reverend Billy Wurtz, a fantastic and satirical blues piano player who played at Jackson Station many times during the 1980s, and is also a successful DJ and writer. We welcome the Reverend Billy Wurtz to the show, and I hope you enjoy this interview. Basically what I'm trying to do with this project is to provide a cultural history of the place and looking at it from a number of different angles from the perspective of Gerald and Steve and his mom, you know, the owners of the place, and then from the patrons and then also the the musicians. And so so it's it's great you got in contact. And and I hear that you said that you were the first act to to ever play. I was the very first actual act to play there.
3: 1982, I've still got the poster somewhere. Okay. Yeah. Daryl hired me through some mutual friends, and I had I did this kind of a wild man piano act at the time that was a real button, you know, kind of a, 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 a novel of Pusher anyway.
2: Uh-huh. Right about that time was when all the PTL scandals and all that were going on. Right. So there was kind
3: of that, that whole angle to the thing, and then uh, it was back in the day when uh, it was fueled by, uh, there was a lot of
2: alcohol and a fair amount of Bolivian marching powder. Right, and, right. And... Uh, no, it wasn't. It was never like a front for a drug operation or anything like that. It was all very legit. Sure. Uh, what, happened, what happened was... What what always
3: killed me, I always called it... I said it was like Smokey and the Bandit meets the boys in the band. <laughs>
2: okay, yeah. On, 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 in, in outer space, because
3: it was like no place on the planet you've ever seen. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, uh, Gerald and Steve were out very obviously gay. Right. Uh his mother was like at the same time his mother was this real old school like she heard me doing some of my songs about, you know, touching myself while watching the Brady Bunch and she was and some of the other songs and she was just like, Don't you come in here singing that devil music you know and he was <laughs> oh, Obama, he's fine.
2: Really? Was that was that a quote? I mean did she actually called it devil music? Oh yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. She wow. uh, uh, they 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 had a hard they, they had they had kinda of, calm her down when I came back and she gave me a lecture one time as I was walking into the place. Wow. Don't come in there singing that dirty music. You know. Um, uh, daddy Brown I could roll off the forest doing Lemon
2: Squeezing Daddy all night long but God forbid, you know. Yeah. At any anyway, rate, so I started out
3: there in about 82 uh-huh.
2: and I was okay.
3: living in Harrisonburg, Virginia at the time.
2: Oh, wow. So you really came down. Okay, gotcha.
3: And I was dating a girl from Hickory, North Carolina so I would play Hickory And then go to Jackson
2: Station. Okay. And
3: we would get down there, and I think he used to put us in this really horrible place like the Greenwood Motel or something.
2: That's a great memory. I think that's exactly the name of the place.
3: Ugh, nasty, nasty little place. Uh And then he also had a back room that I seem to remember staying in at one time.
2: Yes, those were the two old passenger uh, waiting rooms. One for the African-American passengers. Right. Yeah, one for the yeah Uh.
3: And so... So he put me up there, and you would start, you wouldn't even start till like 11 o'clock.
2: Right.
3: And you would play till 2 or 3 in the morning. Yeah. And um, so right away, it became this combination of like real heavy, you know, diesel butch lesbians and <laughs> not too many gay men. Really? Huh. Right but gerald's great quote was we don't fuck nobody in any way that they don't want to be fucked <laughs> or we don't touch anybody i can't remember what he said the f word or it was the T word but it was basically he said uh, something to the effect of we let everybody do
2: their thing we basically we, we don't we don't we don't mess with anybody that don't want to be messed with right and uh gotcha
3: and so i, I and he i asked him about growing up and he said no you know i'm kind of always hung, hung out here and you know, I fuck a few of the farm boys every now and then. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like ah, you know, I mean he was just totally out and 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 really he was just a real um a really sweet guy. Yeah. Everybody loved him. And Steve everybody loved Steve. Uh-huh. And then of course it being South Carolina, you're gonna get the you know, the redneck crowd coming in there and uh-huh. any time you get that late at night with the booze and all that, you're gonna get you know, there was a, there was some fights and all that, but I don't remember at the beginning uh, there being much that that much at all. It just became kind of like uh, you had a lot of students, uh-huh. you had a lot of the fraternities who were already kind of the beach crowd. And, you know, anybody that wanted to hang out late, you know, they were open all night, so everybody yeah. would come out, you know, from either Greenwood or Greenville. Yeah. And uh, so, I mean, there was a whole different scene back then. So I played there, and I played there a whole bunch. As a matter of fact, I think there became a point
2: where it was like, okay, let's put a rest on Jackson Station for a while. Yeah. How many shows? How many shows do you think you played there, Billy, over over the years? Like ten, a dozen, or more? Fifty. Fifty. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Maybe maybe somewhere
3: between thirty and
2: fifty. Wow. Including all the gigs I did with Bob Margolin, including the gigs I did with Nappy Brown. Okay. So, you brought your own piano? So, you hauled it in there? Yeah,
3: yeah, I brought my, I brought my own little digital
2: piano, and I think I brought a little PA. Okay.
3: And uh, came in and set up and played.
2: Cool. Were you by yourself then, for the most part, when you first I
3: was doing a solo
2: act uh-huh.
3: when I first started
2: there. Yeah. And then I think Bob Margolin might have been about the very first guy that I brought in there. So, you tipped off Bob to it? I think I did, yeah. Uh huh. Okay, that would make sense. Now, have you talked to Bob? Yeah, he was. He was. He was uh, very informative. I, you know, Nappy passed away, but I did go out to see Cora. I guess his common law wife, kinda. I'm not sure. If, I don't think they were ever legally married. Right. Uh, right. Right. And she was. Uh, she was a trip. You know. I mean, just fed.
3: Oh yeah. Fed. Does you... she still live in the trailers that are all connected
2: together? No, it's a real oh, house. There, no, it's a oh, real okay. yeah, it's a real house over there, but it's definitely kind of in the sticks, you know. Let's see. So you think 82. Now, did you open for anyone or were you the headliner when you first started there at Jackson?
3: Oh, I played and then I shared some shows with like a group called something like Georgia or something really unoriginal like that. Bob and I
2: split a lot of gigs together. Okay. I would have come out and do a solo thing and then come out and play with him. Cool.
3: So yeah, yeah, yeah. Gerald got Gerald didn't pay all that great, he didn't pay all that bad. It was okay if I remember.
2: Yeah. Um it, it was okay money. Mm-hmm. And
3: there was always um there was always a little bit of cocaine around right. you know, kinda of get you through the night, but it was not like mountains and mountains. You weren't sitting there with your teeth grinding yeah. at noon the next day.
2: Or so at least I wasn't. Was was that provided kind of just kind of complimentary, or, or just, I mean... Yeah, if I remember correctly, it was kind of complimentary, or it was
3: like, you know, if you want to, here's, give me 10 bucks, and you know, here's a couple of lines. Well... It was, it was, not, a, it was not a big dope, dope, you know, it wasn't right. a big, uh... It wasn't one of these where they pay you in cocaine like some of the places.
2: Yeah, and I think that's probably one of the reasons for why people would stay till 5 in the morning. <laughs> you would think, I would imagine.
3: Well, yeah, there, there was that, and then just, you know, um... If I remember correctly, he only had a beer license. I don't think he sold liquor.
2: I think he got liquor later on, but it was you know pretty much right at the end there. Um, right. So you so you it, so you know it, he got attacked in '90. So were, did you play up until you know the late '80s and early '90s?
3: You know, I played there for a while, and then I got sober
2: uh-huh.
3: in September of
2: '84. Uh huh. And, and I remember going, yeah, oh, maybe we shouldn't be playing, Jackson Station was one of those that kind of went along with a lot of the partying and, and sure. that sort of thing. right, right. And, and so I know
3: I played there again a few times, uh-huh. I ended up playing there with
2: Nappy, uh-huh.
3: I mean I knew who Nappy Brown was, obviously, he was a, one of my heroes, Right. but then they called and said, Nappy Brown's playing, and I was like, fuck,
2: really? Yeah. And
3: they said, yeah, he just lives right around the corner, so I ended up going down there and
0: hanging out with Nappy for a week or so. And, uh-huh. uh, Nappy was one of those
3: guys that, tremendously talented guy. He was real, real good as long as he stayed inside his comfort zone uh-huh. of like the nighttime is the right time. and He would do all these little uh, we, 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 have some men
2: out here tonight who are holding. Right.
3: They are seeking. They're saying, whoa, you know. And I mean, right. and he would preach to the crowd. Yeah. Tore them up. Yeah. Just tore him up every time. I will say this. I remember of all the gigs I've done, of all the wild shit and all the places I've played, one of the ones that stands out in my memory, we did a a gig with Nappy Brown, me, Bob Marcolan, and the band in Lexington, North Carolina Uh for the daytime Lexington Barbering Fest. (laughs) And we just had a whole crowd of, you know, Western Carolina, you know, people that were a small town. Lexington, you know, (laughs) Yeah. Happy gets up there and does basically this almost X-rated version of Lemon Squeezing and Daddy. Wow. I mean, he was doing crotch grabs. He was like grinding. He was rolling his eyes, and it was just like the crowd was. It was. It was. It was everything. They said, "Oh my gosh, the wild black man is up there!" You know, and it was like, "Hey!" And it he was great. I'm like, I was rolling on the floor laughing. Wow. You know, I mean, I just don't know what everyone's possessed asking to do it. Uh uh-huh. But it was like. Oh my God! I mean, all the guys have worked with him, nothing ever came close.
2: Really interesting, but that one. Oh, I, and he was just
3: <laughs> acting out an entire, you know, act of, of procreation. It was great.
2: Yeah. So was he touring with Bob then, and then, or all three? of You were. He was,
3: well, yeah. He was he was going and doing some dates with Bob. Uh huh. Um, and Nappy was one of those guys that, as long as he kept him off the alcohol, he was fine. Uh
2: huh.
3: And with the alcohol, he was a big guy, man. He was like my height, right. but big. He was like two twenty, I guess. Uh huh. Um, and the the alcohol could make him uh really not unpleasant to be with.
2: Really? Okay.
3: It brought out a lot of uh, a lot of that hidden rage. Right. You know, and a lot of it was racially oriented. Right, um, right. And, and so, you know, it could be, it could be a little uncomfortable. That but, was very rare that that happened, though. Yeah. Most of the time, there was him, there was Sweet Betty, there was a guy named Fats Jackson who was a marvelous saxophone player. Yeah. What happened was, Gerald ended up becoming something of a latter-day version of the Chitlin circuit.
2: Uh-huh.
3: If you haven't read the Chitlin circuit by Preston Lauterbach, I highly recommend it. It's
2: like the road to rock and roll or something like that. Uh-huh. Fabulous. Well researched. Well written. You were mentioning the Chitlin' Circuit, and and you said that in some respects you think that the Gerald's Club was kind of a latter-day version of that. Totally. Right. Absolutely. Okay. One of the things that I'm trying to argue about Jackson Station that it, it sort of played a, a role. I mean, perhaps not a. Hugely significant thing in, in in the grand scheme of things, but it, it played a role in kind of keeping blues music alive at that particular moment in in time. Would you say that's that's true? Yeah,
3: yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Because in South Carolina, up until well uh, the seventies and eighties, blues was either for the black clubs,
2: uh-huh.
3: Which like there weren't that many of those left anymore. Right. Or it was for the, the very conservative Republican, you know, beach music crowd. Okay. And that meant, you know, pretty much racist, no blacks, uh-huh. uh, certainly no gays. Right. And, you know, very conservative, shag type of stuff that was just kind of
2: the repetitive da 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 kind of thing. Yeah. Um so so no 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 blues so, for just everybody. No blues for what, the mass, uh, no blues for the masses, in other words, right?
3: No, yeah. and so and so guys like Gerald provided regular gigs for people like Nappy, you uh-huh. know, because Nappy was fine when he went on the road, but you know he couldn't make any money locally. And and believe me, as I know from my own experience, the road is never easy, and you know, for a guy in his sixties like he was, right? It's a real it's a real chore. And it's it's a strain. Right, and even with Bob taking you around and everything, you know, staying out that hour till all hours of the night. Yeah, you know, Cora would be with him, and she would hang out. So,
2: so he yeah, could, I mean, so he he could he could just hot. yeah, so he could just zip over from Pomeria for the night, and then go back and, and earn a couple hundred bucks or whatever. Do that a, a couple times a month, or and it help help
3: earn, earn, his, gotcha. earn his money. Go back home, sleep the next day, and and. And be fine, which was, at that point in time, it really helped. You know, anytime people look on the roster and they see that you're back and you're playing again, that's always a big help. And for Napia it was a huge thing because it was like you got, you know, back on the schedule with Bob Margolin. And also, Jackson Station would be like, you could do Jackson Station on a Friday night, and then you could play Atlanta, Charlotte, uh, Columbia, Charleston, there was a whole bunch of places, Asheville, Hickory, Any number of places you could you could get to on Saturday, right? And have a good weekend. It was just it was always worn out. you'd be like, oh my god, we played Jackson
2: Station till four in the morning, you know. And, and now, um, yeah, and now you have to go somewhere else and do it all over. Yeah.
3: Uh, yeah, and like anything else, you know, it, after a while, people were just like, oh my god, they, you know, they loved it, but the, it was kind of grueling because, um, you know, like I said, it didn't start till. I don't think it started till like eleven, and you're expected to play till three or four or later. Yeah. I mean it went on all night, yeah. and so um, there comes a point where it's like, okay, fun's fun, but man, I'm getting tired. Yeah. And uh, even with the, you know, the marching powder and the disco dust, uh, right? You know, it, it would be getting uh, pushing the limits.
2: Yeah, with with Nappy, I mean, when he started in, in the fifties, he he was playing more straight R and B stuff, right?
3: Oh, Nabi was a huge star. He played the Apollo. Uh-huh. He played all the big, you know. He was he was on
2: all the Alan Freed shows. Uh huh. And he was huge. So he was huge. he was a major major star. And then when he came, he was came... on one of the crookedest record labels out there. Oh really? He was
3: on Savoy. Uh-huh. Oh god, they were you know
2: they were gangsters. Yeah, yeah. So when he came back, though, I mean he he was in the gospel thing, and then at J- at Jackson's was it more bluesy? It seems like it was more polished, but or was it the same the same stuff virtually?
3: What he had was Nappy had gone back into gospel right? and couldn't make any money.
2: Okay, Uh, I've got an album by him called Yes, I Know the Man Uh with some people in
3: Charlotte. Nappy had that trick thing that he would do. He had a a double voice. Oh, really? And he sounded like completely two different people. Yeah. He had this very deep throaty, and then he had kind of a high, almost a
2: tenor type thing. Wow. And he could sing in both. Yeah. Yeah. Neat. And so
3: you would think it was two different guys singing, but it wasn't. It was just Nappy.
2: Uh-huh.
3: And and he had, you know, the range and everything else. He just wasn't making the money. Right. But when he came back to Jackson Station, he pretty much had about six tunes that he would do. Okay. Maybe, maybe a dozen.
2: Uh-huh.
3: And Bob was real good about that. i tell you, you know, he didn't come out with anything real earth-shattering, except for he did a... Thing with Bob Margolin, it was like an unplugged thing. Oh, really? You ever get a chance to hear it? Oh, it is so good. It's so real. It's so natural. I just absolutely love it.
2: And then did he kind of play the Muddy Waters role to a certain extent for Bob?
3: Uh, no. I mean, it was more one of the things that Bob was really, really good about was knowing how to back these guys up. Uh-huh. Because a lot of these older guys, their timing is off or they have a specific way they want something done, and they have a hard time communicating it. A lot of younger bands play too loud. Uh You know, you have to keep the volume down. You never know quite what they're going to do. Yeah, And and Bob had that down, and that's why he worked with Nappy so well, and they worked together so much. Okay. Was a total pro. He got that from working with, you know... I mean, Muddy Waters is as good as it gets. Right. And and Muddy still had... uh, Muddy had one of his better bands. I think the band that Bob played with... Was the best band that Muddy had after the Headhunters, the, the, Head the killer the, the killer band back in the 50s with Little Walter and those guys and Otis Spann. I mean, nobody could ever touch that band. That was the greatest blues band ever. You had two bona fide geniuses in that band. You had Little Walter Jacobs and you had Otis Spann who both redefined their instruments. You know, after World War II, if you're going by Miles Davis's description of a genius, so somebody when they're finished playing, what they play and putting down what they do, that we don't look at the instrument the same way. You have not one, but three, including Muddy Waters, because Muddy Waters changed the entire game. Wow. Oh, oh, Muddy was all of that and more. Yeah. And Little Walter probably had Asperger's syndrome, uh-huh. as best we can tell. Uh-huh. But what goes along with Asperger's is that like yeah. canny musical ability what? that's kind of almost otherworldly. Muddy Waters took the, 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 the Mississippi blues. Uh-huh. And plugged it in. Again,
2: okay.
3: technology being a very important thing. He goes to Chicago, right. and they can't fucking hear him.
2: Uh-huh. So he
3: plugs it in, but he made it. It was like a second voice, which is what they meant. The, the, the instrument was merely another way of telling the story. Uh-huh. So when Muddy would do that uh-huh. kind of stuff, there was almost a total. Right. It would just make you scream. Okay. And, and the important thing was, he did all of this stuff. But yet there was an element of detachment that Muddy had that he understood intrinsically. In other words, Manish Boy and all that stuff about I'm a man. He knew what he spoke when he said, I'm a man.
2: Okay. But yeah. it
3: was with the detachment of, no, I know that as a blues singer, I'm supposed to be singing about my dick. Yeah. So here I am, but I don't really believe it to you. you uh-huh. Know? Uh-huh. And But he did songs like 19 Years Old, uh, Mojo. I mean, what he brought to the game and how he wanted it played in a specific way he wanted it played and he utilized the talents. Little Walter was to Charlie was, was everything Charlie Parker was to the alto saxophone, little Walter was to the harmonica.
2: Uh-huh.
3: He changed the instrument completely. Right. The way it was played, the way we used the amplification, the way it was baffled. And Otis Span was Muddy's cousin and provided that just lightning piano that just lit the whole thing up. And and yeah, nobody would when they would come into clubs, people would just go, man, yeah. You know, if they came to Satan, it would be like, Matt, just don't follow yeah. that. And so, and, and,
2: yeah. And so it seems like at Jackson Station, you're kind of getting a glimpse of this history in a way, right? Because the music has been sure. passed down from generation to sure. generation through all these different people, right?
3: Well, and passed down. You know, Bob Margolin, you know, was a nice Jewish boy from Brookline, Massachusetts. But you didn't fucking play with Muddy Waters and be a slacker. Right. You know, you played it right.
1: And here's a little bit of Nappy Brown playing with Bob Margolin at the Chicago Blues Festival in 1990.
3: But I want you to know that I'm glad he done it because that was good for me. Whoa, yeah. Do everybody feel all right tonight? Let me say Say yeah. Say yeah. Say yeah. Yeah.
1: We're going to pick up here with Dan's recent interview with Billy where Billy shared his thoughts on what it was like to perform at Jackson station, what the blues is all about, how it relates to gospel music, and even how it relates to existentialism. Let's pick up with Billy right here.
3: With with Jackson station, you had this club that was putting promoting rhythm and blues. I think he mainly stuck to rhythm and blues and blues. Uh-huh. I know that a lot of the blues bands played there. Yeah. And you know, um and again, this is a this is a blanket statement. But gay folks have always liked blues uh-huh. um, because blues tells you know the difference between gospel and blues are very closely related.
2: Uh-huh.
3: I always, being the existentialist that I am, I said blues is the 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 black populist uh,
0: existential view of life. Right.
3: Gospel is what should be.
2: Blues is what is. Okay.
3: Gospel is the way things should be in the perfect world. And gospel says, no matter how fucked up life gets, no matter how bad with a little bit of prayer and a little bit of faith, it'll get better. Blue says, "Mm,
2: don't count on it. Right. Right.
3: You know? Yeah. Um, And, and blue is
2: just laughing to keep from crying, Uh you know,
3: laughing through the tears. And, you know, and, and and it's always been, you know, I asked her for water. She gave me gasoline. Mm -hmm. Um, Or in the case of like a Robert Johnson, I got a kind-hearted woman, she studies evil all the time. It's about the actual statement about a woman, but it's also on a much broader scale what life itself is like. Right. You know, they're kind people, but, you know, they study evil, just kind of the world that we live in. Uh Uh-huh. And so there were great moments in that place. Yeah. You know, when half of those guys were cooking at two in the morning, and you had... People from truly all walks of life, all colors. I mean, and, and the sad thing was that it was so tragic what happened to him. And again, it was just a matter of ignorance. I don't think his sexuality helped, but I don't think it was the reason that the guy attacked him. The guy attacked him because he kicked him out of the club. Right. And he was just, you know, some drunk local psycho. Right. Um, it's still South Carolina.
2: So you, so you think that Gerald kicked him out because they didn't pay? Is that is that what you heard? Oh, I don't
3: know what the deal was when he was kicked him out. Or kicked him out because he was being an asshole, or what? Okay. But I know that you had to be a real asshole to get kicked out of of, of Jackson Station.
2: Right. Okay. Yeah.
3: Whatever he did, the guy certainly deserved it. It wasn't because he was wearing, you know, uh, it was a, it was a, you know,
2: a bad fashion choice or something like that. Yeah. You know, he was pretty much anything goes, and, and well, anything went as
3: long as he didn't bother anybody. Right. But they were always. I don't remember if they had a bouncer there. I don't remember it. I remember Gerald pretty much handling everything himself. And as you well know, the thing about bars, unfortunately, barroom violence is of that kind that when it goes bad, it goes bad quick, you know, and it's over quick generally. But the damage is done by the time you can really do much of anything. And that's exactly what I understand. was the guy hitting with an axe handle or something like that.
2: Oh, no, it was an actual bush axe that was lodged four inches into his skull. Oh, Jesus. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was absolutely, absolutely horrible. And they took off. And, yeah, so absolutely, absolutely awful. It's it's amazing that he made it to the hospital because he lost, you know, so much blood. But, of course, he was next 20 years in a wheelchair and, you know, totally messed up, you know, for the rest of his life. So somewhere along the way, I remember saying hi to him after after all of this happened. Yeah.
0: Yeah. There were a number of years in there where I was, uh, you know, because of my addictions, I don't remember a whole lot. They're kind of foggy.
1: Right. We're going to wrap up shortly with some of Billy's parting thoughts. So much to cover in his conversations with Dan. Definitely check out Live at Jackson Station if you're intrigued and curious based on what you're hearing here from Billy and from our other episodes of Inside Jackson Station. Dan does a fantastic job of capturing these stories and weaving them together. But we'll pick up here with a few more of Billy's thoughts as we wrap up. Thanks again for listening. It wasn't a place where everybody sat around and sang kumbaya or anything like it. Uh But it was
3: just where people came in and, you know, the music was great. And, I mean, it was... That's where this music came from. It came from after hours clubs and it Uh came from places that were considered, you know, sinful and it definitely wasn't created in church. This was a continuum of that which had gone before and and a very good one at that. And one that would definitely be a very important part of South Carolina history and and culture all the way. Cool. And, uh, you know, incidental that it was owned by a gay man and his partner and Jackson Station was like (laughs) it's just like unbelievable I mean still to this day if I talk about interesting and unique places I played at uh, Jackson Station would be in
2: the top three and that's thousands of clubs and bars all over the world damn that's nice that's good to know so
3: that you know it, it was one of a kind believe me
2: cool well, I've enjoyed... so thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Well, I appreciate it. It's been great talking to you. And if anything comes up or any memory, let me know. And and, and I'll keep you in touch, too. Great. Thanks, okay. Doc. I'll talk to you real soon. Okay. All right. Take Sounds care. good. All right. Take it easy. Right. Bye. Peace out. Bye.
1: And that'll bring this episode of Inside Jackson Station to its conclusion. We'll have the Reverend Billy Words play us out with a little bit more of I Just Can't Seem to Get the Blues.
0: Yeah, my mama had them, and my daddy had them. Thank you for listening. And my sister had them, and my brother had them. And my aunts had them, and my uncles had them. And my gerbils had them, and my goldfish had them. And even my 400-pound ex-wife, Roberta, used to get kind of mad when she'd want to play the great love goddess meets little Mr. Squishy. And I'd say, Roberta, you're going to get away before you're going to hurt me anymore like that. And you can bet that Goliath looked down there and little David holding that rock in his hand and said, you better put that rock away before they have to pull it out of your head. Oh, sorry. And people. And people I just can't see to get the blues.